Welcome to another episode of Connect This. Nope, I just mixed up my shows. Connect This. <laughs> Sounds better. This is a this is gonna be another fun one because I'm running solo. Uh, uh, my colleague Rai, who ordinarily runs these shows, is I believe he said that he is body surfing endangered turtles in the Galapagos, uh, which is a very Rai thing to do. So uh, either that or he is recuperating at home. Uh, either way, hopefully we'll be back for the next show. Rai is great, and uh, I hope that he watches this at some point and gets a grin. Um, we're going to talk about Longmont Next Light today quite a bit. Uh, it's a great municipal network we've talked about before, but we're going to dive in a little bit deeper. And I'll start with introductions from uh, people that you might recognize uh, for having been on here before. Uh, Kim McKinley, the I think I'm supposed to call you the the vice president. No, you're the vice president and and director of marketing, but you have a different. You're deputy director now. Is that right? That, I mean, I'm deputy director, but I'm the chief marketing officer over everything that doesn't include marketing. <laughs> but yes, that is what my my title is. I'm over order fulfillment, sales, customer service, and marketing. All of the things that are under a CMO. But yes, that is me. But I'm and, I'm happy to be here. On and a I don't Friday. know if I mentioned Utopia Fiber, who oh, it yeah, became you, it became pretty clear in Houston at Broadband Communities. You know, we did the show the first night, but. In the subsequent days, it became clear that Utopia Fiber is working on a 50-state strategy. So um, I'm enjoying this time while we have together before I have to start opposing you as a matter of my ideology that we should have local solutions. Okay. Well, it's nice to know you, Chris. And I guess we go <laughs> over to the next guest. Travis Carter. Travis Carter, CEO of USI Fiber in Minneapolis, who may or may not uh, spill the beans uh, regarding uh, permitting challenges uh, on this show or future shows. Uh, it is an honor to see you, Mr. Mitchell. Have, have we got an update on the speed situation? Am I still winning or not? In terms of... Is it still 25-3? Oh, yeah. No, um, I've... I've given up. I've lost. Okay, okay, okay. I've lost so many times. Sunday I went triple wings. or nothing. Are, are you paying for the chicken wings Sunday? Absolutely. All right. Google most expensive chicken wings in Minneapolis. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, Travis, I want to put this out. I don't know uh, if anyone is in the is in the chat yet, but if they would like to suggest, I think it would be interesting. And I've heard from some other people to try to do some a show to talk about permitting and explain what permitting really is. Because I think 98% of people who talk about permitting in a state house or inside Washington, D.C. could not tell you if I held up a fake permit and a real permit, they wouldn't know which was which. And I think we should help to explain what that is. I'm afraid that it would be boring. Um, and I think Travis is afraid that um, we wouldn't do a good job of it. But I think we should try to demystify this. Well, I, th I think it's super boring. And the fun part about permitting is it's an ever-changing world. So, um, and Kim Kim's people probably are well aware of this too. It, you know, from town to town, city to city, who owns what, trying to figure that all out and who is the permitting authority for what, that's half the battle. Then figuring out how to do all the documentation correctly, all the insurance, bonding, et cetera, unique construction requirements each of them have. Oh, the list goes on and on. So- I You've guess already put I'm, me to sleep, guys. You've already I mean, put me to sleep. I mean, it, it is, yeah, wow. And I can't, and we we're not even in California, so imagine what those poor folks deal with. Yeah, 
Yeah. So um, on the other hand, if you focus all of your effort in a single town, uh, it may be a bit easier, Travis, if you stopped um, trying to service uh, more communities and just, uh, you know, took it easy. That's another topic. I disagree. You need to do multiple at once. So that's for another day, though. <laughs> so we have Valerie Dodd on the show for the first time, executive director of Nextlight, which is part of the Longmont utility family, a publicly owned utility in Longmont, um, I was going to say North Carolina, which is totally wrong, <laughs> Colorado. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here, share our successes, our shared passion for broadband, all that fun stuff. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. And you've been on, I guess, as the, on the Community Broadband Bits show before, which uh, I enjoyed talking with you. And hopefully uh, we'll do something fun at Mountain Connect and maybe uh, pull you and Dennis in. Uh, That'd be awesome. Dennis, I think you joined one of our live shows previously. You've been on Community Broadband Bits. You've done the circuit. Welcome back, Director of Fiber Networks for uh, Nextlight. Thank you. Pleasure, uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite, Christopher. And then I think we may have uh, Ron Valdez joining us as well with some of this uh, work, and um, we'll add him in as he comes. Um, I'm going to do my best to try to remember that I'm the one responsible for switching the screen around as different people talk. So if we get stuck somewhere, we'll all know whose fault it is. Um, I wanted to ask, I want to crowdsource a quick tip before we get into Longmont. Um, I am going to Hoopa Valley, uh, re a tribal reservation in Northern California next week. And all of a sudden I realized that I am on Ting, uh, an MVNO, and I got stuck somehow on the T-Mobile network when I used to be on Verizon. And I've noticed that when I travel around, I don't have service. So, and I've, it's too late for me to jump over, but I have a Pixel 7 and I can do an eSIM. And the question is, should I run down to Verizon and see if I can get Verizon service on the eSIM for one month somehow? Does anyone have experience with this? No? You have a what? A Pixel 7? <laughs> Roll call. Yeah. What the heck I, is I, that? Is that like, is that like a Microsoft phone or something? See, I, yes. I, this is... So Chris is a green texter, and we don't we don't even refer to green, green texters. Uh, no, none of us in the fiber business would know anything about what you're talking about, sir. All right. Well, just for the record, Travis, your new iPhone in like, uh, I want to say 2027, I think will only have eSIMs. They're getting rid of the physical SIMs in the Apple phone first. So you'll figure out what this is eventually. Uh, and it's sir, supposed have, to be cool. We already have eSIMs and the, uh, the Apple works just see, this is not a pixel, sir. So. All right. Well, I'll ask, I'll ask some other folks for advice on this then, um, because I would like to have um, some the other phones green textures. I love it. Green texture. I love it. All right. Um, so let's, uh, before we talk about Longmont, the other thing I want to bring up was ACP. I think um, that we're getting a, a dose of reality around uh, the challenges of renewal, renewaling the ACP, the Affordable Connectivity Plan. Uh, and I'm just curious if uh, anyone has any thoughts on this. Um, uh, you know, and Dennis, why don't we start with just asking Dennis and Valerie, um, do you all uh, use ACP? Are you part of that program? Absolutely. Um, even before the program came out, we had a service or uh, an option for households with children to get free internet if they participated in a free and reduced lunch program. So we had a program called Sharing the Next Light. So we addressed the need for low, if not free internet. Then here comes the pandemic and we realized there were more households that maybe weren't participating. So we launched our own discounted internet before ACP. Then ACP caught up with us and we said, absolutely, we're going to partake in this. Uh, we even help customers qualify. And so we 
because the process I think is a little arduous for them. And so we said, yes. So we said, we will take that on. We want to make sure that they get their connectivity. It's super important to us. And we, yeah, took that $30 credit and are applying it to customers. We're also augmenting it with an additional $10 to $20 off, depending what speed they choose. So point being is students and other qualifying households uh, can get free internet. And it's 100 meg symmetrical, no data caps. So we don't know anyone else that's offering that. And so we were thrilled to be part of that. And you can get $20, one gig service, symmetrical, no data caps, because again, we apply the $30 and then we throw in an additional $20 subsidy on the one gig speed. Uh, We have a little over 900 customers participating and hope to continue to see that grow. But we're very thankful for it. We're trying not to get too addicted to it and make sure that we have an exit strategy and a way to continue to offer such great service. Excellent. And how do you feel about concerns that it uh, could run out of money next year? Uh, hope that it doesn't happen. We're going to find a way to continue to provide free service to those um, people and family with a little extra need. But, yeah, it's it? concerning. And I think we all realize the importance and how imperative imperative it is that all households have access. And there's really no way to exist in this digital world anyway, anymore without it. So yeah, we hope the subsidies continue. Excellent. Ron, I'm going to bring you in in a second. Uh, but first, I want to go to Kim and ask, have you had any insights since you're, uh, I feel like, uh, the person responsible for jet setting around and getting your message out as well as uh, focusing on policy wins? Uh, the ACP will continue. Is that what you're asking, Chris? Yes. I think it can. I think it has to continue. I think that there will just be a really big, um, a big S show if it doesn't, basically, because I think it has to, because I think the pandemic really did shine a light on that this is a necessary service and it's essential. And I don't think the Lifeline program really hits to the core of the problem like the ACP uh, program does. Mm -hmm. So although we don't know, I think that in my um, what I've heard and what I think, I don't think that there's any way it couldn't continue. I think it's just how do you continue it um, in perpetuity and how are we going to fund it is the biggest question. Yeah. And I think, I mean, these are open questions, but um, the what I'm hearing from people that are working on this in D.C. is that um, and this could be changing, I think. But uh, at one point, it sounded like there was more of an effort to go to a one-year renewal, which to me sounds like uh, really bad. Uh, but um, they were having trouble getting a multi-year renewal because of the expected costs. Um, I mean, we're looking at on the order of, I think, um, $6 billion a year, roughly, if we continue at the current um, pace. And if we actually have a lot of new signups, uh, because the vast majority of people still aren't actually using it who are eligible, uh, that would even escalate more quickly. And uh, the fight right now is how to spend less money, not how to spend more money. So um, there's definitely some real challenges out there. Uh, Travis, how many people do you have using it? Well, I want to put a quick plug in for this buddy of mine that has a uh, an old school podcast, episode 551. Joey Wender was on there. And it was his his insight was very Joey Wender. Yeah, interesting on ACP about how it has to get attached to some other bill like this year, or it'll be, it'll be really in, in tough shape. Um, 
you know, I think I think we're we're four or five hundred now. You know, the the original marketing of it, we we got a fair chunk. Then there was all this integration issues we had, and then we got audited, and then we got you know the the, the drama went on. Well, I, I feel like we're through that, so we're actually just in the process of doing another education run with people to let them know that it's available and if they'd like to take advantage of it or not. So I would imagine there'll be, there'll be more to come. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's something worth tracking, but like you said, I highly recommend if people can check out episode 551, uh, Mm -hmm. which is this week's episode of the community broadband bits. Joey Wender talks about it. He's from the department of the treasury. He's handed out, I want to say $6 billion of the 10 billion that they have to hand out. There's 11 States left to go and a bunch of States still haven't gotten all of their money. So by the way, what a cool job giving out money, right? I, I, I was, I, I thought it was pretty. That should be my next job, I think. I mean, it could be your job right now. Um, you know, you, I could just show up and you could give me money. No, no, you're paying for the wings. Stop getting out of it. I, I won the bet two years in a row. So, all right. So let's talk. Uh, I want to bring. Um, I want to bring Juan in. Oh, sorry, Juan. There we go. We're joking about. We're joking about your last name, Ron, and then. That's how I introduce you. Wonderful. Welcome to a very professional production. I'm going to go ahead and guess, Ron, that that you are the principal of Valtech. I am. Yeah, I, I started this company back in 2011. Yep. Awesome. So what does Valtech do? So we are a wireless engineering services company. Um, <clears throat> so I had spent uh, my career, um, started. I started at Qualcomm, and then I worked for several carriers throughout the years. So I did research and development on 2G, 3G, and then uh, when I worked for the carriers, um, we launched uh, LTE. So my last job was I was the corporate engineering manager for Cricket. So I managed all new technology, um, new spectrum, new initiatives. Um, so that that all came under my leadership. So I kind of had a heads up when it came to carrier wireless technology before I started my company. And uh, my company was actually centered around um, private wireless, starting with Wi-Fi based, you know, unlicensed based technology. So we did that for several years. And then, of course, when CBRS became available um, that, you know, we got to stay licensed before it was, you know, publicly available. And we did a bunch of testing right prior to COVID. And um, we were the first ones to actually have a production level network launched for the students um, during the early stages of COVID. Uh, up in the mountains. So we've had a, <clears throat> a chance to really kind of test the model and understand how to make it viable. You guys were talking about pricing and ongoing support. I think that you really have to make uh, CBRS and anything focused around private wireless along T pricing. Um, and so when you have that, then you can have certain programs that can continue to fund, um, you know, a, a wireless network. Um, such as CBRS. So, yeah, well, we'll get we'll get into that in a second. I do want to recycle one of my favorite old jokes uh, on you, which is that if you've been around for CBRS, 4G, 3G, and 2G, that makes you OG. So, <laughs> that was um, a terrible joke, Chris. That is a terrible joke. That's how you know it was an original. I did it myself. <laughs> Um, let me bring, let me bring Dennis on and Dennis for people who aren't familiar with next light. Um, let's just uh, dive in and we've probably talked a little bit about it already. And I think a fair number of our viewers are familiar with it, but what is next light? 
Uh, next slide is a uh, fiber-based company that is in the city of Longmont. We're an enterprise organization associated with the city. Um, we started the build out of the network in 2014. We said we were completed 2018, but Valerie and I have talked about it multiple times. We're, we're, we're never completed mm -hmm. here. We, we continue to grow and expand and uh, we provide uh, symmetrical gig service and now gig plus services as of uh, September uh, with a two and a half and a 10 gig symmetrical service to roughly 45, 48,000 homes now in Longmont. Um, we have two uh, formidable competitors here in the market, uh, one Lumen, one Comcast. And right now we have roughly 60% market share um, with roughly 26,000 uh, 26, subscribers. And that suggests that I feel like um, you might have plateaued a little bit because you hit 50% quick. And, um, and so... Uh, 60% is remarkable for people who aren't familiar with going into a mature market with stiff competition like that. Uh, but I'm just curious how, how things are looking from that perspective for the fiber product. Um, I still think we're on a pretty good trajectory. We've, we're growing uh, this last year. We grew probably about five and a half to 6% mm -hmm. clip. Um, we expect to grow at another one. I mean, eventually we do see it slowing. I mean, you know, eventually you just run out of customers to get, even though we are, you know, continuing to expand and grow. But, um, you know, we provide a, a good service uh, at a fair price. And, and the thing that I've always said that attracts the customers to us is that we're local. You know, the, the, the power company here, um, Longmont Power and Communications has, been in the markets for over, I believe, 100 years. Mm -hmm. And and the relationship that they have with our customers here has been a boon for us on the next light side. We have the same type of relationship with our customers. You know, when they call in, they don't go to, a, you know, a, a call center somewhere else. They go to people who they, you know, shop and go to church with. And when a technician shows up, it, you know, maybe somebody that their kids play baseball with the other kids. So uh, we are very local, homegrown, and that is a, a good selling point for us here. Plus the you know the service we have, which is, you know, we, we're basically uh, the top uh, of the other two providers that are here from a speed standpoint. And Chris, I'm going to jump in real quickly because um, I am also a marketing person. And I want to make sure you understand the uh, penetration numbers. So um, our penetration changes a great deal as the denominator changes. So as we continue to turn up new MDUs, multi-dwelling units or apartments, then we put a lot more numbers in the base. And so then our penetration will come down. It'll go back up. So I really like to focus on customer count, um, most importantly, and then also the fact that we're over 90% fiber enabled throughout the community. And so as that number gets higher, sometimes our penetration drops until we catch up with the um, really the customer count. So super proud of the growth Dennis talked about. We are projecting it's going to slow a little bit because I think the, the last tranche of customers to get are those people that are still a little bit addicted to their cable remote and some people are still reticent to let that go for streaming services. So I think that's a little bit of our challenge. Yeah. And for, for context, you were among the first, although I think both of you were working for CenturyLink at the time. Uh, but uh, I remember when you launched aggressively into a time when triple play was the common feature. So um, Nextlight was one of the first and the first large network to really um, uh, to go with a retail service offering that was uh, focused on uh, just high speed data and phone. And um, 
And then on top of that, you crushed it. And so your your like zero to 50 was faster than almost anything else that we'd seen in a time in which we were expecting slower growth because of the fact that Doxis 3 was out and, and CenturyLink was building uh, fiber optics in, in, in places. So uh, it's it was a significant rise. And then on top of that, you got the publicity from numerous awards being named the fastest ISP in the nation. Um, I'm sorry, you know, what did Travis, you say? Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then the second fastest, and like consistently being the fastest in the region and Travis might want to just like argue with you a little bit about how one does that but uh <laughs> but you you've, you've been a top ISP um absolutely and and I want to make sure that I always qualify this because we do answer a lot of calls we have a lot of opportunity to talk about our success but there were a lot of things working in our favor. And one of those is that we had a hundred year old electric utility that was really successful, proved to be um, very valuable and provide you know, excellent rates as well as really reliable service. And so people entrusted the city and really understood, wow, they do a great job. I have clean, wonderful tasting water. I have great, valuable electric rates. So that made it easy. So I do say that was a good foundation for us. Maybe easier. I don't think you're going to be quoted saying it was no. too easy. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing in this realm is easy. Now, before we jump into the wireless, I'm, I'm curious if Kim and Travis, if you have any, any questions about the network itself. Go, Travis. I'll let you go first. Uh, did you guys build aerial or underground? We're about 15% aerial. 85% underground. Um, we have plans to underground, you know, a mile this year, um, probably a couple miles next year. By the time we get out in our fifth year of our CIP, the plan is to underground about five miles of that. So we hope to eventually, um, you know, to get everything underground. It's an expensive undertaking, as you all know. Um, you know, one of the issues that we are, I mean, one of the things we are doing right now, we've got uh, uh, when the squirrels get too large in Boulder, they send them up here because they we have a lot of ADSS in the air and they, they chew it up. And so anything that we do replace, we're replacing with armored so that we can, uh, you know, have a little longer life with the stuff that we still do have in the air. What do you um, when did you start your build and how long did it take you to build out to 90 percent? I wasn't here at that time, but what I hear is the build started in 2014. Mm -hmm. And that we claimed that we were built out in 2018. Um, it, it, we started, we have six phases. Now we have, so we just built our seventh phase. Um, what I heard was, you know, they were starting phase one and things started going so fast that they went in both directions around the city. So we went kind of one and six and then two and two and five and then three and four. Um, and I think it took us, yeah, almost four years to get everything built out. But I think you did have the benefit of uh, significant conduit as well as the uh, not benefit of conduit that may not have been properly um, uh, recorded on maps and uh, be available for use. I don't know if you remember, if you've heard any stories about that. There was, I mean, Longmont was, you know, a visionary. You know, they started talking about this in the early 90s about, you know, wanting to build their own fiber network. And, you know, somebody had the, the foresight to say, well, let's go ahead and let's start putting conduit in the ground to every, every place that we build to. Mm -hmm. And they were sticking either one or two inch and a quarters in the ground. And, and now our, you know, we're sticking three inch and a quarters uh, in the ground, every new place that we build so that, you know, when it comes time to deploy, uh, you know, kind of that middle mile network that we have to get in place that, that, that uh, those facilities or those raceways are in place that we can place the fiber in it. 
Would they go? Do you guys go Active E or do you go G-Pon? Uh, we're G-Pon. Okay, nice. Yeah. So we're G-Pon, and we just upgraded with our new uh, phase we have, which is Phase Seven. We're um, XGS. Nice. Um, and so, you know, we're hoping that we can take our, our splits from 64. We're, we're trying a, a new apartment complex where we're doing a 256 split and see how that works for us. Because, the, you know, higher you can do on the split, the lower your port cost, which, you know, is, is, a, is a boon for us. So You're doing it in an apartment building, right? Um, we have just the splitter cabinet sitting outside the apartment building, and then we come back to, to that, you know, that local point. Yeah, but the, the distance is relatively short, though, right? Yes. So, so you've got the optical budget for that. Okay. Correct. I just want to make sure people understand you're not doing 256 single family homes. That would no. be, be a little challenging. But did you say you're doing 64? Uh, we are, and, and we've got one subdivision. We're even doing a, one, uh, a 128 there. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I thought I thought it was uh, most muni's, I think, are at stick with that 32 and, and don't push it too hard. And then you guys probably have similar construction issues that we have in Minneapolis, Twin Cities here, right? Where it gets pretty cold there in the winter, doesn't it? So do you guys do you guys shut down in the winter or do you continue to do services? Um, by having the conduit in the ground, we get to pull a lot, uh, a lot of fiber in the winter. Yep. Okay. Which is a fun experience. But, you know, if, if we have some areas that uh, we need to get to, we can, you know, we temporize in a lot of single family homes. And then in the spring, you know, we have the same thing you do, right? We freeze yeah. out in November and thaw out in April. So when you do Tim connections, do you do them over sidewalks or do you just, because I mean, I think that's a challenge of that sometimes temp connections are great until you have any kind of walking area in the way of these. And like, especially since we are an operational partner up in, Bozeman, Montana for the Yellowstone Fiber Network. We like we've talked about um, doing temp drops and they say no, because people use um, their four wheelers to go um, yeah. up and down their streets and then they would just pull the fiber and you're like, well, first of all, that's impressive that they um, plow with four their four wheelers. But second of all, I was like, I had never even thought of that. So I didn't even know if you you ran into some of those challenges as well. Um, we do, and we'll either put a uh, <clears throat> one of those strips that you have, you know, since they're such short lengths over a sidewalk, we'll put one of the strips down for the fiber to be in, or in some instances, we'll just tape it down if we have the, you know, if we have enough thaw and a warm enough day to do that. There was uh, one other thing. Oh, that's right. I wanted to ask, before we go into the wireless, once again, I'm just going to keep teasing this. We're going to talk about the how cool it is to be going into a private LTE. But, and this is probably a question for Valerie. Um, the state law has changed. Um, you all, um, you know, every now and then I think about, um, I was involved in that campaign in 2009 uh, that lost. And people talk about how uh, it's unanimous with the cities that have voted on that restriction where cities had to, have, uh, cities, counties, school districts, whoever had to have a vote. Mm -hmm to do anything in telecommunications in Colorado. Um, and uh, it was unanimous, um, ultimately, because uh, you did vote again in 2011 and have a successful vote, but you are the, the only community that has voted against a municipal project in some ways. Has removing that restriction changed at all your plans for the future for working with others or anything like that? Oh, that's a loaded question. I got to be really careful how I answer that. Um, <laughs> the Alliance may, might be listening in, right? I remember yes. I visited them in 2008 or 2010, I want to say. It must have been 2010. Yeah, and we're very cautious about over-promising because 
uh, obvious probably that all the neighboring peripheral cities want part of Next Light. They know how great it is. And I'll let Dennis talk a little bit about some of our plans to edge out in some of the tiny little unincorporated areas just north of the city. And then also if we get some additional federal funding, then we'll have a little more ability to invest again in those contiguous areas, provided that we do have the electric pathway there as well. So that is sort of one of our requirements. Um, but I think we're just very excited to sort of help lead the way and improve the concept that municipal broadband can work. And Dennis and I laugh having come from the other side where we used to say they have no business getting in broadband. They don't know what they're doing. It's not their core competency. Wow. Watch us. And Dennis and I, I think, are just salivating every day thinking, oh, my God, we've got a 100 percent fiber network. Never dreamed that we would have such a superior product and be in this place and space where we get to um, win every day and really delight customers. Sorry, the cat feeder's going off. Oh, and no then worries. here come my overfed cats running across the floor. So sorry about that. But anyway, so we're just so glad that people just, are recognizing and enabling more. And fiber. I, I wanted, you gave me a chance to know, I think, uh, I don't think it's just one person. There's multiple people, I think, at Chattanooga who are from AT&T, you know, um, and I was talking recently with uh, some folks up in Washington State, and I was saying, you know, if we see a bunch of more cities and counties or public utilities moving forward, we're going to need more talent coming into this. And I think, you know, we welcome people that would like to move from a private sector provider to then take on the, the slightly different approach of a municipal provider. They're welcome to come over. The, the pool is nice, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and I think, though, we all need to be really mindful of the cooperative effort and it's easy to be competitive. And I've in the past been in a competitive mindset and a profitability mindset. Now we're really about no this has to happen. We have to get a connection in every home for the good of the communities, the local economy and, and beyond. And so I often say, I'm not a hundred percent. You got to go strict muni play. It's partner work with people. None of us want, you know, government waste. We don't want to overbuild. That's not the intent. The intent truly is to enable and make sure everyone has fair and equal access to a superior product. And so I just want to make sure that I don't come across to gung-ho, whatever. To me, it's gung-ho connection. And let's all work together to figure it out. Anything to add, Dennis? No, I, you know, you ask about the, you know, the Senate bill. I mean, I spent four or five years of my life. I fought the Utopia Network. Um, I spent a lot of time in the Salt Lake City down uh, downtown, and in a lot of their. I thought I thought we were friends, Dennis. I thought oh, we were I know, friends. I, <laughs> I, I talked to Ron about this whole thing, and when I interviewed with Nextlight, when I walked into uh, uh, to Dale's office, he said, "You look really familiar." And I said, "You know, I got to be quite honest. I said I spent time in Longmont arguing against this network, and and so it was kind of funny that now you know I get to be on the other side, seeing everything that we're doing and the benefits that it definitely provides to everybody in our communities. So um, I, I'm glad that others are going to have the opportunity to do this with having without having to jump through all the regulatory uh, steps and expense, frankly, uh, to make a network happen in their uh, in their communities. Yeah, and I, I, Kim, I'll come back to you in a second, but I'll just throw in the obligatory, uh, you got to take it seriously. There are communities that have made serious mistakes. And um, in fact, as Kim sometimes said, Utopia made all of them. Um, but um, there are ways to come back from that. But uh, it's best for communities to do their homework ahead of time and take this very seriously. Yeah. Go ahead, Kim. 
I was just going to say, I think that just proves that there are different models out there that work for different cities and different communities. And there is not a one size fits all for every community. Um, I think that Utopia and a lot of them have been in the forefront of these conversations and they've made the mistakes and that we want to share that if you want to go down this path, this is how you get there. But I also want to say that even though we believe this and there's people like Dennis who's fought against us and others um, who've, who've been uh, to fight against this fight, it's, it's, this is not a space that the private sector should only be in or the public sector should be in. It is a mixture. Our public power and private power is a mixture. So why does a broadband have to be any different? And I think that is uh, really the truth of this conversation. I just got interrupted by uh, Google support. Um, Google has uh, lost a bunch of our Gmail messages for one or more of our accounts at uh, ILSR. And apparently I have to put my phone on silent here. Um, and uh, uh, they were going to call me at 11, um, which is uh, two and a half hours ago for those of you in different time zones. Um, pretty, pretty great service there. Um, speaking of the cable industry, <laughs> Google Fiber. I think Google Fiber is way better than Google is on these matters. Um, so uh, let's talk about wireless then, because this is one of the things that there are on the order of 200 communities that have citywide fiber service. And we have been waiting to see if any of them were going to be creative around private LTE. Um, we've had um, Deb uh, Sempier on the show before, who is a huge private LTE enthusiast and talking about mixing these things together and all that can be done. So um, let's just uh, start off with Ron. And Ron, you just want to give us like the quick version of what private LTE is for people who um, have uh, some familiarity with networks, but aren't uh, in, in this professionally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, private LTE allows you to provide your own carrier class wireless service. So something that's a step above Wi-Fi um, for private use, meaning that you can control uh, the network, the policies. And if you do it right, it's going to be more of a CapEx driven model. What does that mean? What is it? Why is it important to say it's a CapEx driven model? Um, <clears throat> so you're really some of the options that you have for, let's say, city initiatives. Um, a lot of cities will use, let's say, uh, Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile uh, data, data plans in order to provide service for things like uh, law enforcement MDTs or security cameras or you name it, right? So bringing in private LTE um, really just requires you to build the network, whereas if you use a, a carrier uh, SIM card, uh, then there's a continual OPEX with that for the life of the use of the application, whether that's MDT or security cams or whatever. So by coming in and building your own LTE network, um, you can pay that capital up front, and then uh, your OPEX, um, when you normalize it over five to seven years, it, it, it drops quite a bit when you look at your total, your total investment. Let me open it up to Travis or, or Kim. Did you, is there anything you want to ask before we start talking about how Longmont is doing this specifically? No, I, I'm, I'm curious about their application. And so I will hold my questions till the end, Mr. Mitchell. Um, I will second that second um, Travis's answer. This is the only time we agree. So keep yeah. continue on. Yeah. So Dennis, do you want to fill us yeah, in on so, some of the plans? Yeah, so Chris, about, about two, two, two and a half years ago, St. Vrain Valley School District, who were already providing services to the schools here, 
Um, is Joe McBreen still there? McBreen? I know Joe retired. And funny okay. story, I went to uh, Joe and I. Uh, and now we we didn't go to high school together, but we went to the same high school. So I, I I've known Joe for years here. So oh great, I hope he's doing well. He is. He and Andrea are uh, living the retirement life, and every time I see a Facebook post, they're on some different beach somewhere. So excellent. Yeah, yeah, it's good. So um, he's the one that brought him over because they were on UPN, I think, and then he brought him over to uh, to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Um, anyway, we had uh, this opportunity um, to partner with St. Verain. They had a vendor who backed out. They wanted to provide services out to a community that's out by the interstate on I-25 that uh, had um, no, well, the only service they had there was from Lumen, CenturyLink. Um, it was uh, um, not a very good, not a very good broadband service. I think they maxed out at about five meg. And, and they wanted to provide services there to the community center. And then there's a swimming pool area in that. And, and they came to us and said, hey, is there any way you guys could look at the technology and tell us what you think would work best? And so we partnered with a company that came in and we built a, a, a two-hop radio shot that went from Longmont all the way out to the interstate. And we dropped about, I think it was close to 200 meg down at the swimming pool and into the clubhouse and then the swimming pool area in the parking lot. And the first day we turned that up, um, we, we drove out there and there were kids sitting outside the clubhouse while it was closed, just lined up with their, you know, their tablets and their laptops out working on that network. Um, we started thinking about, OK, so kids on the free and reduced lunch program, uh, St. Varane went out, they got a grant and they came to us and said, OK, what would you recommend? Um, what would you recommend for this? And since um, Joe was with um, St. Varane. Uh, and he went to Glenwood Springs High School, which is in the Roaring Fork Valley School District. We got talking about that, and I asked who their partner was for it, and he said, well, this gentleman named Ron Valdez. Um, and so I reached out to Ron, and we started the discussions about, you know, what we could do, um, you know, what we could do for a wireless network in, uh, in Longmont. And so we, we put out an RFP. Um, we got a couple responses. This is before I reached out to Ron on it. And the responses both came both came back with a Wi-Fi network that really didn't address the needs that we had. It only built out a portion of the city. Uh, it was three times the money that was in the grant amount. And that's when I reached out to Ron and he came back to us and said, you know, let's look at doing, you know, a private LTE network. Um, it presented some challenges because of some things that none of the other two people that responded to the, to the RFP had uh, brought to our attention, but Ron was able to uh, work with the uh, NTIA, and I'll let Ron talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but eventually, we were able to build um, a number of sites here. We had about 4,200 students uh, on the free and reduced lunch program. And by the time we get done, uh, you know, with the build, we finished, you know, the first couple phases of it. Uh, we'll have service to probably 50 plus percent of those students in in Longmont. Um, they pick up a they pick up a jetpack from uh, from the school district. And then they hop on the network and the, the school district has a support line that students can call if they're having issues. And then if they have issues from a field connectivity standpoint, uh, Ron has set up uh, uh, a helpline also where the students can uh, or the school district can come to him uh, helping to shoot some trouble out of that. I have to think that one of the differences when you control the private LTE also is that you are able to make sure you have coverage and higher density areas because during the pandemic 
people handed out the jetpacks for the the big carriers and found that they didn't have enough capacity in these high density areas where a lot of the kids were um, you know, concentrated. So the, the school district gave us a heat map, basically, which pointed out eight different uh, eight different locations where they had a high concentration of students. And those were the areas we focused on. We were able to uh, place a lot of uh, LTE antennas in, in the parks that we have around town that got near those students, uh, private buildings, community-owned buildings, city-owned buildings um, that, that allowed us to really cover, uh, like I said, initially about 35% of those, uh, those students. And then uh, we've got another phase that we're going to be building out here over the next two or three months that are going to allow us, like I said, to get up over that 50% threshold. Um, then with that network in place, we started taking a look and said, okay, and we worked with the school district on this. Is there an opportunity to um, put security cameras in some of these parks to ensure that the students that are hanging out there are working there in the parks on their, on their laptops so that we can kind of monitor what we've done there? So we've now added those devices kind of from a smart city standpoint to that network as a, as a complementary service um, and, and partnering with our folks in, in the parks group and then PD, of course, to, uh, to ensure that we have a safe space for, you know, for the kids to hang out during the day. And are you uh, doing a public safety testing of it to see if they might be interested or do they have uh, other, like, have you considered other applications? I assume that would be a natural one. Yeah, we're looking at other applications. One I think just came up the last, I think, week or two. Um, they have doors. We have a lot of damage um, at our parks with the with the restrooms and stuff. Um, we have a lot of people that have figured out when the doors get locked, so they go inside, so they're in, in, in a place where they can stay for the night. There are now doors that will lock automatically, and we're looking to see how we can interface those doors with that network in order to, you know, we can lock them, um, whatever, you know, whatever time that we need to. I think there's a number of other different, you know, I don't know, Valerie, you want to talk about the LHA with the, I don't know if that's too new to talk about um, or not. Yeah, I, I think I can allude to some things. So yes, there are numerous, I guess, IOT and other applications and especially in support of public safety um, and deterring crime. Uh, so one thing that's new that we're just starting to explore, Ron again is helping us with that, and that is meth detection in some of the uh, Longmont housing properties. And so we're trying to figure out how that works. But that's certainly of interest to us as really our city manager has that vision of just leveraging, for one, the partnership with St. Fran Valley School District and making sure that we can get a robust LTE network whereby they're benefiting from our expansion because we can, again, make access available to their students. And then we benefit from the footprint that they've helped us establish to date. And so the vision really is to have kind of a ubiquitous local LTE private network that we can leverage across all of the different departments, uh, our operations, all of those things to really take us to that next level in terms of a connected and smart city. First Excellent. of all, you had me at meth. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know, Kim, if you watch popular media, but uh, when people are cooking meth, for instance, it can be very bad for other people in the area. So uh, you, I, I assume that has to do with it. Yeah. It, I, I'm not saying it's not a serious issue. I'm just saying that like it's marketing of we can detect your meth wherever you are is um, 
something you don't hear when you see smart city applications being promoted. You don't hear that as the number one bullet point uh, that people are trying to do. Totally like, fair. And I think the first, you know, aside from connectivity for the students that requires even less engagement, you know, from the ACP um enrollment perspective, but then it was the security in the park, security, and then it'll be license plate reading and making sure that we can solve crimes quicker. I've had some success to date with the cameras. And then it's just all these ancillary things have been popping up. And then, but the, the meth thing is just a challenge because it is so destructive to the property and it takes, you know, I, I can't remember the numbers, $20,000 to rehab and refit a space. And so uh, the math works out pretty quickly to invest in the prevention and deterrence of such activity, especially in um, our city's housing. Apparently, I need to um, watch popular culture is what you're telling me, Chris. No. Thank you. <laughs> you can often download it on a device and take it with you now. Oh, <laughs> Uh, so that's only on the Pixel 9. <laughs> so I, 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 go ahead, I'm interested to go. We're going to the Smart Cities Conference next week in Denver. It runs the 16th, 17th, and 18th. And I'm sure we'll hear about a bunch of new technologies yeah. there. So we're really eager to figure out if there are any additional applications that we can try to implement in this network that will you know, complement what we're already providing. Don't go into the point of where somebody's yard doesn't look nice a detector because then I would get a lot of tickets. So we want to stay. We want to stay in the illegal circumstances, not in the disruptive. And I, I should note that we will probably be doing some kind of connect this episode at um, Mountain Connect, which is August 6th through 9th. 7th through 9th, August 7th through 9th. And I'm um, assuming that Valerie and Dennis, you'll be there since it's now so close to you. We will be. Yes. It is in Denver this year for people who um, uh, many of us will miss terribly the amazing scenery and beauty of being up in the mountains, but not miss the two hour drive to the airport, wondering if you're going to get caught um, behind some blasting on the highway. Yeah. And we didn't get to play golf last year because there was snow on the ground. That's right. So, yes, Travis, we welcome it. Were you going to ask a question about the applications? Oh, I've got tons of questions. So, all right. Uh, but I said I'd wait till the end. So this is the, this is the time to ask questions, or else there's not going to be enough time. Okay. So uh, private LTE. Did you overbuild the LTE network on top of your fiber plant? Is that the idea? And so the first question I have is, did these students not have access to the fiber network, or was it was it a deployment issue getting to them? You know that. Go go ahead, Valerie. I'm so sorry. Because, um, yeah, I get real nervous around certain words. Overbuild is one of those words. Um, hard to get federal grants if they ever think that you're overbuilding. So I avoid that term. I like to say we augment and we're trying to provide alternative solutions to meet the customer where they are and how they want to interact with us. I think it's they're clearly that clear Valerie is a marketer, just yeah, so you know, yeah, just yeah, from yeah. That, that statement. <laughs> Sorry, we don't qualify for any government money. So I use the word. So the, the, the networks run in parallel. Uh, yes. The fiber I mean, they augment and support yeah. and support a transient lifestyle or home that some of these students might be in. Um, also, Quite frankly, there's probably a percentage of undocumented families and households that are a little reticent to do business with government. We do have fiber available to what 90 plus percent of those dentists. It's pretty close between 85 and 90, yep. Yeah. 
Yeah. Our preference is that they have a, a terrestrial based service, um, our wonderful service that we have, but we're finding they're still using wireless and they're not engaging for whatever reason. And the school district said, this isn't working. We got to find another way to do it. So they started exploring and then they had the funding. So we like to believe it's augmenting more from a behavioral perspective, maybe than from an overbuilding network perspective. And yeah, if I could, Travis, if I could just for a second, because I think you can imagine if you want to make sure a student is connected, you as USI Fiber in Minneapolis, and the family says, all right, well, they spend two nights with me, they spend two nights with their mom, and they spend three nights with their grandparents. Are you going to try to provision three different fiber connections? Uh, or, you know, I, this is again, I, I'm, just, I'm just, I'm asking, I, I'm being the comments section here. Right <laughs> now. I'm just asking the questions like, because one of the issues that we run into in the um, city of Minneapolis is mounting assets. So how difficult, Ron, was that to deploy this LTE platform and are using like the small cell technology or using the bigger technology and are you in the CBRS band? All right, I'll leave you at that. So <laughs> the answer is, the answer is yes, we are using CBRS and um, you know, the, the mounting uh, can vary in complexity. So a lot of bucket truck work. So we'll have a, a variance between rooftops and poles. Um, but to give you an idea, once we got the purchase order, we were able to build 23 sites in about two and a half weeks. And that includes all of the low voltage cabling inside schools and conduit exterior to the schools, to the rooftops. So it just comes down to fine tuning the process and being able to execute, you know, at a certain price point. So and the key, the key thing to I assume all of these 23 locations tie back into the next light fiber plant, right? Yes. Yeah. This, this is crucial for people to understand because they think, oh, we'll just set up an LTE network and we'll be good to go. Well, if what are you going to hook it up to? They always lose that, that piece of the puzzle. So it would have been very challenging to do this without having the fiber plant. Well, we've, we've got, we've got over 35 miles of LTE in the mountains from Glenwood Springs to Aspen, just outside of Aspen. And so as we go across these different municipalities, these small towns, we don't have a consistent fiber offering. Okay. So okay. okay. We've done, we've done multi-hop microwave off of mountains. We've done uh, cable backhaul. Um, and then used VPN on back of that. So you just, as long as you have connectivity, um, you can make it work. And are you using a, do you have a public license or do you have a private CBRS license? Um, yeah. So we are using just the, um, the GAA spectrum right okay. now. So, so do you have, how big, a how, how much, how many megahertz do you guys get to use? Well, it's kind of without going too far down a rabbit hole, um, there's a spot in Virginia and a spot in Longmont, Colorado, of all places in the U.S. that have quiet zones that are dictated by the NTIA. Okay. So what that means is that nobody can transmit CBRS um, uh, with, within those areas. So we had to do some uh, empirical testing. We had to prove some path loss models. We had to do all of that nerd stuff that I did for my previous career in order to get approval from the NTIA and uh, Google SAS in order to, to onboard these, these sites. Um, so when we look at spectrum allocation, uh, we're currently using 20 megahertz okay. spectrum in the GAA right now at various intervals throughout PAL and GAA. And if PAL comes, then we'll have to shift over to GAA. So I assume Comcast has the PAL license along with maybe like Verizon or something like that. They do. Yeah. Okay. So the user experience is 100 megabit probably. 
Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So very, very usable then. Yep. Yeah. And are you finding challenges with different building materials that you're trying to, to get through? Uh, occasionally, but like I said, um, you know, it's just it comes down to experience. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be the, the great Juan Valdez coffee guy, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I just, you know, I spent years building markets like Chicago, Philadelphia, you know, Baltimore, Washington, you name it, San Diego. So I, when it comes to, you know, working with towers or working with, you know, rooftop assets, I have, you know, almost 27 years worth of experience. So for my team, it's a quick execution. For others, it could be kind of a slow go. Were there any like major problems you had to overcome that would be interesting to tell us about and relive in traumatic detail? Well, first of all, the NTIA was very traumatic. (laughs) That whole thing (laughs) about being able to use the spectrum, right? Um, That was a hurdle all on its own. Um, But other than that, um, you know, everything was smooth. Uh, We, we've, we started off with the first 23 sites. We're now at 38 sites that are on, on air. Um, and I mean, we can build multiple sites per day. So it just comes down to process and repetition. And um, we, we didn't run into any big problems at all. So can you get a Pixel 7 to connect to it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's not be unreasonable, Travis. What other questions do you have? <laughs> I, I, I like it. You know, I mean, I, I guess I see um, I was kind of looking at Google to kind of see how you're you, you, you there's a lot of foliage there in Longmont, kind of similar to what we have, which is yeah. and does do, do they give does the CBRS give you the similar uh, transmit power that you get off of, you know, typical? No. Yes. Yeah, so, so you've got a really so the density of towers is probably pretty high there, right? So you got, you got, yeah, 50 watts EIRP versus, you know, a typical cell carrier, you know, at one rad center is going to be over a thousand watts. Yeah. Right. And you got multiple carriers stacked on a tower or rooftop. So our link budget is always a concern, but again, it comes down to there's one thing that is, that has really helped us and that's the ability to plan. So our planning tools and understanding of calibrating empirical data versus predicted data, which again, years of experience, you know, cause we are spending billions of dollars with a wireless carrier. Um, it has to be spot on. So you have to be able to leverage that and part of your design and build process. And so you can do little tricks and nuances like no above clutter, below clutter, right paths and windows in order to cover certain areas. Um, with CBRS, it doesn't necessarily have to be line of sight all the time. Um, but for the most part, you want to get it as much line of sight as you can. So, so I guess the moral of the story there, Chris, how is, I hear it all the time. Oh, LTE, 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 just like the cell carriers have. CBRS and LTE that the carriers have have very significant power budget differences. So the user experience will and the deployment methodology is very different. So just not everybody that can deploy an LTE network can deploy a CBRS network effectively. So I just wanted to make sure that we got that resonated across to the fan. Dennis, it looked like you were leaning forward at one point. I was just going to say the biggest obstacle for us from an engineering standpoint was getting some of the privately owned buildings here in the city to agree that you could put it on there for the benefit of the kids while others wanted, you know, $10,000 a month to, to locate like they, you know, like they get from Verizon and the other big, you know, the other big uh, uh, providers in the city. So really that was, I think the only obstacle that we kind of struggled with, but we were able to find locations, uh, alternate locations with Ron's assistance and uh, 
we're able to get you know agreements to to attach to those buildings or to or to put the uh, sleds up on the top of those buildings. Yeah, I imagine Ron that uh, you're sort of like, is that building owner really? Can we can we not find an agreement? Like this is the perfect building. Come on. <laughs> oh, you have no idea. And, and imagine that you guys are the city, right? So the city. Imagine the city's calling. So imagine if you're just some private company calling. Oh yeah, add another zero onto that onto yes. their uh, onto their 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 budget. Right, but I mean, I think people may not understand too, Dennis. I'm guessing that when you're trying to reach out to these building owners, many of them aren't even in Colorado, right? Like you're trying to yeah. get a hold of someone who doesn't care to return your calls, and yeah, it's not easy. That's correct. Uh, yeah. Kim, are you texting? Um, um, wow, um, Roger. Sorry, Roger. <laughs> are you texting Roger that you guys have to get into private LTE now? No, but I was just starting to think this was like a Travis therapy session when he was like, add another zero to my cost. I was like, do you need a hug, Travis? Oh, no, I, was, I was just, I, I don't think, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, every city called and they're like, hey, we need to put up LTE during the pandemic. I, well, it's, it's not quite that simple. A, do we have a fiber backbone? Do we have rooftops? Do we have all these pieces in place? And, and they just went kind of silent then. You know, and and deployed all the Verizon pucks at that point because you know to do a CBRS correctly, and you know I commend you, Ron. It is not an easy venture, you know, especially in a heavy wooded area like you guys have. You know, it works great in the winter, I bet, and then in the summer you got to kind of tweak it a little bit. What does the cost look like overall? I, think, I don't know if we ran through that, but um, what it ended up being for and for about how many antenna sites, and like is that a decent way of breaking it down? The total award that the grant had from uh, that St. Varane got was, I believe, 1.7. There were two separate ones, and in total, those 1.7. So that was the in, the equipment, the installation, and then a number of uh, jetpacks that they ordered as part of the package. That's a, I mean, that's lower than I would have thought. Um... Yeah, so I think just on average, like let's say a rooftop site all in, including some managed services, you should be about $20,000 per site. CapEx. That's if you're doing it right. Travis, so, I think we weren't doing it right when we were scoping out in St. Paul. <laughs> yeah, but but that doesn't include the roof rent, the backhaul to get right. there. I mean, there's, yeah. But I thought the, uh, I mean, have the prices come down that much? I thought I thought we were I looking yeah, at like you know, more I, than that just for the buying, purchasing the transmitter. I haven't looked lately like who the dominant vendors are in the CBRS area. I'm sure it's matured quite a bit. But remember, back in those days, there was like two people building equipment. So, you know. Yeah, the, just real quick, I think one of the things that, you know, all the listeners have to really think about when, they, when you say the word LTE is, and I, I spent years in the M&O world and I, I've seen pricing and I manage budgets for the Ericsson's, the Nokia's and the Alcatel Lucent back in the day. And um, they try and port M&O type pricing and process of how long it takes to build a network and how much it costs and the EPC uh, costs, you know, the, the, the LTE core, mm -hmm. they try and port that over to CBRS. And that's why it's been such a monumental failure out of the gate, I would say, or, or maybe a more politically correct way is, is a slower adoption. That might be a, <laughs> a bit, right. But a lot of the, you know, if you go and talk to a lot of the vendors and you put together a cost matrix and you look across the board and you take a look at CapEx and OpEx, and you look at the cost per site, and then plus, let's say, 40 devices on average per site, when you take a look at that total investment, the prices for a lot of the vendors 
or more towards the carrier side pricing, which you go to an IT director or a CIO, they're going to say, what? Why am I paying that much? I'm used to thinking about, you know, $20,000 per building for switches or firewalls or fiber. You know, it's, there's a normalized cost that you get used to being in the IT space on any kind of property. You just get accustomed to it. But then you go to the MNO and the MSO world, and then you take a look at the cost to build a cell site, you know, a quarter million to a half a million dollars to stack the steel and radios, and it takes two to three months to get on air. It doesn't have to be that. And where a lot of the ecosystem has missed, both in the 4G and the 5G space on the private side, is normalizing the cost to talking to the CIOs and IT directors and working with school districts and municipalities and normalizing that cost to something that makes sense. And so had that from the Nokias and the Ericsons and some of the other key players, if we had that, then it would make it easier to build, quicker to build, easier, more cost effective and more sustainable. So. Excellent. As we're wrapping up, Valerie or Dennis, if or or Ron, if you have to drop, um, we could go for a few more minutes. But uh, and if you have another thing you have to run to, I totally understand if you disappear. Um, any uh, closing comments, Kim? You unmuted there for a sec. I saw. Well, first of all, I'm just really good with the button. No, I don't have any closing comments. But I think it's when you're talking about the cost of thing, these things, and I think Travis and you like that we've talked about what does the cost really mean and how do you get there? Because I think a lot of people can talk about all this stuff and we can talk about all the applications and we can talk about the use cases, but a lot of times it's a lot of marketing. Um, Valerie, I get it. I'm a marketer too. So, uh, and, and you really have to look at, is it feasible to get to these places and how do you get there? It's not just an easy solution. And I think it's really, really important for people to understand that. So I, I've appreciated the discussion and what really happens. So that is my comment, Mr. Mitchell. Thank you. I think it's so cool. I mean, I just, the, the being able to do this to solve a problem for, uh, for children who need this for internet access, but then to have a test bed where you can now experiment and learn from it and figure out where to go with it uh, is, is terrific. Um, you know, I think Travis made a comment on a previous show that, you know, you probably don't want to, uh, put a ton of surveillance cameras on LTE. But if you want to get a camera up and you want to do it quick, that's probably pretty nice. And then if you're going to need it there persistently, you, you, you have a, your leisure, you can uh, pull a fiber over to it. Um, but I think I'm, I'm hoping that other cities are looking to you. Um, you know, I would imagine that in the future, um, right now, we still have a lifeline program that pays for people to use mobile service. We have um, a lot of people who use their ACP um, you know, for a mobile service. And I think, um, you know, it would be great if, if more of the community networks had a wireless offering to help um, people to um, cover their bills better and things like that. But Chris, I think that's an important question. Have you had cities and other communities reach out to you of what you're doing? Valerie or oh, oh sorry. You said you said Chris, so I, I definitely have not. I mean, we went, we've uh, we we talked about this at the uh, the CBO meeting that was in Denver um, to a couple people, but no, we have I haven't had anybody reach out to me on it. And Ron, I, I think noticed. they have no idea. Like, I just don't think people have any idea what's possible. Okay. Very well, might. Ron, is that your sense? I mean, when you're talking to these folks, I just I think people don't appreciate like the way that we can integrate things in interesting ways and, and be creative. Yeah, I think there's there's kind of a cookie cutter approach from a lot of the integrators and partners that are really trying to deploy and engineer CBRS and private LTE that 
has caused a sense of staleness. Um, you know, like, Ugh, it's too much of a problem. It's too hard. In, in reality, it's simple. Um, it's not that heavy of a lift at all. Think of it. Think of it as just a uh, Wi-Fi plus plus. You know, <laughs> if, you it, if you do it right, it's going to be that simple and it should be online ready to go. So. Mm -hmm. Great. Any last comments? Yeah, Chris, I was just going to say, I mean, summarize what we've all sort of alluded to, and that is be open-minded, be creative about partners and carriers, and be open-minded about different technologies. So layering partners and layering technologies, and we can eventually solve for the gap, which has to be solved for. Excellent. So uh, you all ready to host me for a week to bring a documentary crew in and, uh, and go through all this? <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> We'll be camping out in a Travis's RV and using Starlink. Um, <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Let's do it. So we do not know when our next Connect This show will be. Uh, connect This. Uh, but I think uh, we will be aiming for um, about two weeks from now. Because next week, I'm in Hoopa Valley all week, not having cell phone service. Um, and uh, we uh, should be back the week after that. I believe I will get a date out and circulate that around. Um, this has been terrific. I really appreciate all the time from, uh, from Longmont, from Dennis, Valerie, and then Ron really appreciate you coming by to share your expertise with us. And, uh, I would love to, uh, meet up with you at mountain connect. If you're uh, going to that, uh, for a possible in, uh, I was gonna say in your face, but that's kind of weird, like, a with a live interview with real microphones. So, um, so with that, uh, it's been a fun episode of connect this. Thank <laughs> you.